0: tonight numbers chapter 30 and 31 so let's open our bibles there the old testament book of numbers we've been here for 28 weeks we've been studying numbers for 28 weeks we've had breaks so we've been been in this study almost half of the year um, but we're studying through the bible why do we do this on um, um, was it because we want to know what the bible says and we want to hear the bible story and numbers has the greatest It's the greatest story, a Bible in a Bible. It's all about redemption, God redeeming his people and leading them to the promised land, as I've shared over and over again. So this story within Numbers is the story of the Bible, but we're getting all the details about the children of Israel who are now at the border of the promised land. They are in what would now be commonly seen as Jordan. could be Jordan, where Marwan, our sound man, is from. And right there, before you go over the Jordan River, there's the city, Jericho. I think they can see Jericho. You actually can. I've been to the river. I'm going there in in 2020. I'm going to be there. We're going to go to that river. And you can see the city of Jericho from that place. And um, they're within sight of the promised land, but God hasn't let them in because he's been giving them all these details. He's giving them last minute details. Last time, it was a couple of weeks ago, as you might remember in chapter 28, and 29, we looked at all the required feasts. God reminded his people, when you go into the land now, you're going to have to keep the feasts. Remember, there's a, there were daily feasts, there were weekly feasts like the Sabbath, there were monthly feasts, and then there were all the feasts that were to come in each part of the year. God's reminding his people of all the feasts, the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Trumpets, Day of Atonement. All of those feasts were reminders of the people that God had provided a miraculous way out of Egypt after 400 years of bondage. God miraculously, through, through the ten plagues, delivered his people, and he's going to deliver them to the promised land by a miracle. He fed them miraculously. He watched over them and protected them with a the cloud by day and the fire by night. All of those signs... Were God's provision and His protection. And He wants them to remember that. So the feasts, all the feasts that they're required. So he, those chapters were all about, I want you to remember, I want you to do this. You have to do this every year. And Jews, even today in America, in San Bernardino, they do these feasts, Jews. They do them all. And because they want to remember all those things, they want to be faithful to that. So now we're moving into uh, this new section. This chapter here, there's two different things going on, but I combine them because I want to push through this section. Uh, Chapter 30 is about vows. He's reminding his people about vows, about their word. They're going to be in a new land. There's two and a half million of them. They have new laws, Ten Commandments. And now he's going to talk to them about when you say something, it's important. I'm going to hold you to your words. And so this first chapter is about vows, And then chapter 31 is about a battle. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. So let's, with our Bibles open, let's ask God's blessing, and then we'll jump right into it. Father, we pray that you would teach us through your word. We're grateful to have the Bible. We believe that it was written by the Holy Spirit, by you, through human authors. It's not written by men. It's written by you through human authors. And you tell us this story because you want us to know about your divine work of reconciliation, your divine work of love and grace, your divine work of redemption. So teach us, Lord, as we now look at your word. In Jesus we pray. Amen. We begin here in verse 1 with a requirement to keep vows. Notice verse 1. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribe concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man make a vow, a nadir in the Hebrew, to the Lord or swears an oath to bind, which is Shabbat, himself by an agreement, he shall not break his word. Very simple to understand there. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Or if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself to some agreement while her father in her father's house in her youth and her father hears her vow... And the agreement by which she is bound herself and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand and every agreement with which she is bound herself shall stand. But if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand and the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. So this first section here is instructional. God's holding people accountable for what they say. This is a new thing. These are slaves that have come out of Egypt. They they were enslaved for 400 years. They ate when they were told to eat. They ate what they they were given. They worked, they ate, they worked, they ate. They did what they were told, they were slaves. And now they're their own people, their own government. God had to give them a new government. He had to reestablish the tribes and all the things that we've learned as we've gone through the book of Numbers. And so now he's talking to them about their words to one another. This is how they relate to one another. So it's really instructional here. Your your verbal commitment to the people around you is extremely important, and God holds you to the words you say. That's really what this section is about. A vow before God is no small thing. So he commands his people to keep their word, their vow, and to fulfill the oath that they make. It's very important that you, what you say you're going to do, that you're not hypocritical in those things. That the believer, for the application for you and I as Christians, New Testament believers, is we are to say what we mean and, and do what we say. And our, let our yes be yes and no be no, as we'll see. But it's really important. But the, the other part of this in verse 2, the other Hebrew word, we have nadir, Uh, the vow. It's a promise to do something, in this case, to God. If a man makes a vow to the Lord, verse 2. Now, throughout the Old Testament, you'll see different vows people make. Jacob vowed to God. In in Genesis, he vowed to God, God, if you'll do this, I'll do this. And there are other vows, like the Nazarite vow, where an individual would commit themselves to obeying the Lord in in a way. And they showed that. The outward appearance of that was they didn't cut their hair. Remember, it was Samson and his long hair. He was a Nazarite. John the Baptist and his long hair. He ate locusts and honey. That's kind of a weird diet. But that was a Nazarite vow. No alcohol, no strong drink, and you let your hair grow. And everybody around, oh, that guy's got a vow going. He's got something special with God. And this was an outward sign of his personal Vow, John the Baptist. Even Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 11. Remember, it says he cut his hair and then he went back to Jerusalem. In other words, he hadn't cut his hair for quite a while. So Paul was a long hair for a while. Then he cut his hair. He had the Nazarite vows. It was very serious, except for maybe Samson. He wasn't too serious about his vow, if you recall what happened to him. Now, in verse 2, notice there's the oath to bind himself by some agreement. The Shabbat like an oath to promise not to deliberately lie in court. You go to court, and, and they're removing this out of our court system, which, again, they're ta- the, the secular world that we live in is taking the Bible, because the Bible's truth. They're taking it out of the school. It's taken out of the school. They're taking it away from the courtroom. From, a con- uh, from the president, from our, our Congress and, and Senate, that used to put their hand on a Bible and swear allegiance to the country, now you get a totally different thing. They swear allegiance to whatever book they want to put before them. But you know how that is. You go to court, you put your hand on the Bible, you hold your hand up, and I, you know, you swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, the whole truth, and to help you God, right? And that's a, you're, you're making an oath to keep your word. And that's really what this is like, this promise not to tell a deliberate lie like in court. When I was growing up, it was very popular to say, and I, I hope you don't think I'm I'm saying something wrong, but I swear to God, you know, you, you're, you're telling something to a friend, and they say, oh, brother, then they roll their eyes like, I don't believe, I swear to God, you know, and it's one way for us to communicate, it's probably not the best way, by the way, but it's one way that we would, we would uh, youthfully um, try to express the fact that we were telling the truth, and we, want, we were passionate about it, we want you to really listen to us and, and understand that we're telling you the truth. So as a believer, you shouldn't have to say an oath to convince someone that you're telling the truth, right? You you, you should let your yes be yes, your no be no. James 5, 12, notice the verse behind me here. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So God's listening to your oath, your vow. Probably the most critical vow. That's broken, but even by believers is that vow, till death do us part. That's a vow, and guess what? I I think people get married to the beach. They get married on a you know on a building. On a, they f- jump out of a plane and in the you know with their pastor and they say a vow on the way. When you, when you, I mean it's ridiculous, right? When you vow your love and commit yourself to another. I I personally, I mean. I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm not dogmatic about this, but I love to have a church service where you're recognizing that people in, in your family and they're recognizing they're under God and you're saying under God and you're looking and I'm standing here with rings and a Bible and they're looking at each other and say, say after me, I, Samuel, take thee, Kathy, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to love from this day forward and the whole vow. It's a beautiful thing, Right? And it's super important, wouldn't you say? I, I get Christians all the time saying, Pastor Lee, I got married in Vegas. Can you do it again? with? Can we do this again? Yes. Let's do it again right here. And we do services during the week sometimes. Somebody will come in and just say, you know, I, I just want to do this in a different thing. It doesn't make your marriage more valid because you're in a church. But I do think there's an important element and symbolism when you're in a church and you commit your with your christian family around you and the witnesses hear your vow vows are important vows are important to god so we need to fulfill our promise god wants his children he wants us as his children in his church to be able to trust each other he wants these children Of Israel, all the Israelites, as they go into this new country, to speak the truth to one another. So the vows are important and God listens. Paul says this, notice this verse behind me, Ephesians 5. Therefore put away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. It's important to tell the truth, speak the truth. And by the way, that includes money that you borrow from individuals or a bank. Well, you know, I just, I couldn't make my payment, so I just went bankrupt. Wait a minute. You made a vow, and you signed a document. You're responsible for that. Don't let any pastor say, well, you just, use the court system. It's legal. You can just get bank, go bankrupt. Wait a minute. You're a Christian. You don't operate by the ways of the world. We don't do that in any way, shape, or form. You pay your bet, your debt. And I, I have illustrations of brothers in this fellowship that that they, they actually went through this system and I helped the one brother years ago. You're probably listening to me on the internet right now. Years and years ago, I helped this brother. And he called this this debt organization and said, I'm just out of control, and my credit cards are over limit. I I owe money on the house, and I'm just I gotta go bankrupt. I can't, I can't do it. They said, No, no, there's another way. And so actually he was able to reduce his debt by I don't know, it's like 70% or something because he called and said, I, I want to be faithful. I want to pay you something. I just can't pay this off. I'm out, I'm out of bounds. And so they reduced his debt and he was able to pay it off. That was the key. Because why? Because we're Christians and we made a vow. Don't just bail on something because there's a law somewhere that says you can go bankrupt. And if that's happened to you, I, I'm not accusing you. I'm not down on you. I'm, not, I'm just speaking the truth here about the vow. Now notice again, there are some vows that are not binding. My next point here, the first one is a young girl's vow, verses 3 through 5, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself to some agreement. Notice, here's the key, while in her father's house in her youth. So here you have a a young girl, a young teenager. She just blaps, she says something. I'm going to marry Samuel. And the father says, no, you're not. I mean, that's, that's really what, or I'm going to do this. No, you're not. But if she says I'm going to do it and her father doesn't correct her, then that means she's going to have to fulfill her vow, right? That's really what this is all about. But it's not a binding vow like the others. This is a young girl's vow, and it can be overridden by who? Who overrides the vow? Her father. Why? Because she's under his authority in the home. That's God's way. It's God's method. So you have this this young girl. She's unmarried, and her vow is not binding because she just blurted it out in her youth. That's really what's going on here. Her father has responsibility over his daughter. So when she makes some foolish commitment, her dad can say, "Uh, no, she's not going to do that. That's really what that's about. The second example of of the non-binding vow is in verse 6. It's a wife's vow. Notice verse 6. If indeed she takes a husband. So we've gone from the, the young girl and her father's home to a, a woman that's married. While bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips. Now, can any of you ladies, can you relate to the rash utterance from your lips? Saying something passionate, something, something just out of, you know, just blurts it out because you have something you feel and blah, there it comes out. That's, that's a rash a rash utterance from her lips, As she bound herself and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day that he hears. Then her vow shall stand. Why? Because her husband didn't intervene. He didn't say anything. He didn't correct it. But, verse 8, if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he shall make her void her vow which she took and what she uttered with her lips, by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. So the husband says, no, you're not. And he overrules his wife. Why? Why? God has established the same in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal but under authority in the home, husband, wife, children. So change that around. Put the children in charge of a home. You want to see a home out of control? The children are running things. The two-year-old, the terrible two, whatever the two says happens. I want to eat now. It's, the whole, everything stops. We don't go to work because we have to appease this screaming, yelling, frothing at the mouth two-year-old. Have you ever had one of those? Pastor Lee, that never happens. I've had five of those, <laughs> two of which you saw tonight that are grown up and have gone through that phase. They all go through it. My wife always said, why do you say that about the kids? Well, you guys understand, right? Maybe not when you were two, but you've been around a two. They're out of control, wouldn't you agree? Most moms are going, yeah. I'm just saying that in this case, you have this woman that is married, and her words can be overruled by her husband. This is God's way. He's put this to protect He's protecting her from saying something. Why? Because she said something, rash utterance from her lips. She was emotionally out of control, and she said something. as, No, we're not doing that. That's the husband's responsibility. But there's another real important truth here taught throughout the Bible. God calls a man, the husband, to a higher level of obedience when it comes to the home. I am not a f- husband to any other woman in this fellowship, except for Esther, and God calls me to a higher level of obedience to His Word in relation to my home. In other words, you don't have to, ladies, you don't have to listen to me. I'm not your husband, but you are required to listen to your husband. That's the word of the Lord. That's the way God's made it. Well, that's not fair. You know, in current society and, and women's living and this and the Bible's no, the Bible's true. If you want to. Turn what God has made right side up, upside down. Try that and see how that works in your home. Watch how that works in your neighbor's house. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And then you move from man to man to man because you want to be in charge. You're going to fail. You're going to struggle. It's it's not going to be a good thing. But if you submit to the Lord, you submit to your husband, not to a wife beater, not to an abuser. I'm not talking about that. But your loving husband, you submit to him, because it honors the Lord. That's this level of obedience that God wants. He wants men, and he holds a man, a husband, responsible for what happens in the home. When I talk to a husband, that's wife wants to leave him. I never say, what did your wife do? You know what I say? You're the man. You're the head of the house. What are you doing? Headship holds that man responsible you your responsible to provide for your wife your responsibility to keep things going spiritually? Oh, we never go to church. We don't do that. You know, I'm out working on my car. I change the brakes. You know, that's what I do. I'm out in the, the, my man cave all the time. She's inside. I'm outside. She doesn't know I even exist. You know, why would she complain and want a divorce? Because she married you for a communion, for fellowship. She wants to have a relationship with you and communicate. But you are outside working on the brakes all the time. God desires to have, or uh, husband and wife, to have that close, intimate fellowship together. But when you bail on your your wife, man, it creates all kinds of problems. In the New Testament, it's Peter who gives instruction. Let me give some of this. This is really good. We might not get chapter thirty-one. We might just do this tonight. Notice this, First Peter. In the same way, wives, here, this is roles for husbands and wives. I'll get to the husbands, but the wife. Be submissive to your own husband. So that even if your husband's a jerk, that's what it means. He's disobedient to the word. That he, your husband, that's a jerk, can be won without the word by the behavior of the wives. By that quiet spirit, by that submission to God, submission to her husband. When I, have, when I do counseling, I'm always telling women, you will never, it never happens. It will never happen. You will never win him. You'll never win him doing this. You'll never, ever, 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 ever win him with words. That's what it says right here. That they may be won without word, but by behavior. It's actions that speak louder than what? Words. Well, he just needs to get a piece of my mind. He needs to hear my hmm, 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 mm. You know what I'm talking about. No, no, no. See, that's, again, when you do stuff upside down, when you take, if you obey the word blessing, things will go smooth, God will work it out. But you step into your own realm and you step outside of God's, the kids are in charge, the woman's ahead, and the husband's a mealy mouth, like portrayed in every TV show for the last 20 years. Gone are the days of father knows best and leave it to be. I grew up with that. I love that. Andy of Mayberry, where there was respect in a home. I mean Aunt B respected Andy, right? But now the husbands are jerks, they're knuckleheads, they're fools. And they're portrayed that way purposely. To elevate who? By who? Society and the the whole liberation of women. Elevate it's it's really a device and work of Satan. Oh, he said it. Oh, I'm never going to that church again. Well, I believe it is. I believe it's a twisting of God's beautiful and perfect way and will in a home and in society. When you obey God, he'll bless you. When you step outside, you're on your own. The believing wife is only to submit to her husband, to that man, and she's to do it God's way, and when she does it, it works. A smart and spiritual husband learns that his believing wife needs to be heard. In other words, a smart Christian man. I learned this a long time ago, that you take your wife's counsel, that you speak to her and you listen to her heart. Got to listen to her heart. If you don't listen to her heart, you lose it. So you listen, and, and when you make a decision, she says, okay, I'll do that, because you, she was able to express her views as well, her feelings, her emotions, her, it was, you worked it out together as husband and wife. So you make a decision as a husband and your wife submits because she knows you hurt her heart and you're making the decision and you're accountable to God anyway. And she trusts you. That's the way it's supposed to work. Doesn't always happen, by the way. So the question is, husbands, do you listen to your wives? Do you have that time to listen to her heart and have those discussions find out what she wants, and, and how she views whatever it is you're going to buy. Wow, well, I was at a Bible study. I, I'll just be honest. It was 35 years ago, and we were young, and we went to this Bible study locally, and, and uh, the guy that was doing it was a really, really neat brother, and he was so gentle and patient, older, probably 10 years older than me, and, and we were pretty young, married, you know, Esther and I, and... And we had this other couple in there, and this guy, man, talk about a foolish person. And it was all about, he, he looked at us, and we read this scripture, and we were talking about how you need to listen to your wife. He goes, well, that's really lame. She'd want to buy a pink car. And all of us were like, really? I mean, that's what you think of her. Have you asked her? I mean, and she was like, you know, shocked. Shocked but they never had the conversation. That's the point. They didn't talk about it. You need to talk to your wife and you need to help each of you express your thoughts and views and then make that decision and move forward as a couple and God will bless that. The third example here that's non-binding, right? Because the woman was overruled by the husband. First, the, the, the young girl was overruled by her father. The, the married one was overruled by her husband. And now we have the widow's vow, verse 9, real short. Also any vow of a widow or a divorced woman by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. So the widow or divorced woman. She doesn't have a male head. She doesn't have, she's not under her father. She's not under her husband. She doesn't have a head over her. She's bound by the words that she says. So that's just a warning to that person, that individual. Now, in verses 10 through 16, we get the vows that are confirmed. This is interesting. We go back to the marriage. Notice a wife's confirmed vows. This is really interesting, verse 10. If she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement with an oath... And her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule her. Then her vow shall stand, and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. So they're in the house, and she says, you know what? We're going to do this. And if he doesn't say, no, well, we're really not going to do that. We don't have the finances. We don't, well, we're not going to do that. If he says nothing, then that agreement will stand. That's what he's saying. The key there is the husband heard the vow. If he didn't hear it, that would be unfair, right? He could say, I never heard her say that. Of course, a lot of you men probably say that, don't you? I didn't hear you say that. That's my biggest excuse. Am I the only man in here with that excuse? No, I see you guys smiling. I didn't hear you say that. (laughs) After 41 years of marriage, it's really lame. I'll tell you what, it's lame. And I know it is. My wife is so patient with me. I'm so grateful for her. But... But here, notice verse 12, but if her husband truly made them void on the day he heard it, then whatever proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concerning the agreement binding her, it shall not stand. Her husband has made them void and the Lord will release her. Every vow, verse 13, and every binding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it or her husband may make it void. Now, if her husband makes no response whatever from Day to day, then he confirms all her vows or the agreements that bind her. So you better be listening, men. Husband, you better be listening to what your wife's saying. If you're not willing to overrule, then you're stuck with it, stuck with whatever she says. Because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. Verse 15. But if he does make them void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. So very interesting. Again, the husband heard her vow. It doesn't say anything, but days later, it's like, wait wait, wait a minute. I want to change this, but it's too late. He's got to pay the price. He's got to go through with it because he didn't think that day. He didn't listen. He wasn't part of the decision. It's like I'm not really into baseball. I, I did watch a little baseball the other day. Just try, try so hard. I really try. When hockey season comes, I'm all about it. There's some football guys in here. They're not, but baseball's the big thing, right? Everything baseball. So you turn on a Dodgers game, or you turn on a a Angels game, and you're watching the Angels game. (laughs) Oh no, baseball. So you're watching the game, and and. And your wife is in the background saying, Honey, I'm gonna take the Visa card and I'm gonna go down and buy a new wardrobe. Okay, honey, whatever you want. You're really in. Mike Trout hits a a homer and you're, Yeah, uh, honey, I'm gonna spend about $5,000 today. Okay, whatever you want, honey. And she goes out and does it. And you didn't rebuke her or anything. That's your tough luck, right? That's kind of what's going on here. But the the broader principle, The broader principle here for Christian marriage is that God expects husband and wife to be working together, communicating. We're not the same. We don't think the same. That's why we need more time. We need time to talk. We need time to communicate. We need time to listen, to be aware of one another. Peter says it best. And here we get the husband, the husband here. 1 Peter 3. Again, notice this verse behind me. Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wife or them with understanding giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may be not be hindered there's a lot going on in that verse men would you not agree a lot of accountability there in that verse number one you're supposed to live or dwell with understanding you can't understand your wife unless you're with her well, I spend, you know, 60 hours working, you know, and then I have to sleep a little bit, and then I got to fix the brakes, you know, so I'm never around my wife. Well, your, your relationship is never going to advance, right? If you don't spend time and dwell, that's what he's saying. You got to dwell with them, and then you have to do it, men, with understanding. Now, he says this, a couple of things here about understanding. Giving honor to your wife. Isn't that interesting? Giving honor would be listening to her heart. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. I don't. Well, honey, why not? Well, because I just don't. Well, you're going to have to help me understand this. What, what is it that you don't like about this house, this person, this food, whatever? And listen to her. Dwell with her with understanding. And then give her honor. By listening, number two, give her honor publicly. Do you, husbands, do you give your honor, or you give your wife honor publicly? How do you do that? Pastor Lee, how do you do it? Do you open the door for her? Do you let her go through the door first? Or are you the first one out? You just walk, you get in the car, and you're like, come on, get in the car. Pastor Lee sees that. Oh, did I say that? I don't always open the door for my wife. I did tonight, once in a while. I should do it more. I do open the door when we go into business. I do open the door at home. I always try to always let her go in first. I try to show honor to her in different ways. Really important. Communicating that she's important to you, man. It's dwell with her according to knowledge, giving honor to your wife. And then he says, as to the weaker vessel. And all that means, doesn't mean she's weaker Physically, there's a lot of women that are pretty doggone strong. I don't know if you've looked at women lifting weights. Not the trans one, not the trans women. I'm not talking about those, the the ones that are in the news. I'm talking about a a real woman that that lifts weights, that can bench press way more than you can, you weakling like me. I mean, they're scary, some of those gals. You can work yourself up, women, and men can do the same thing. and get all strong and buff. But he means by weaker vessel is someone that that's sensitive to words. Wouldn't you agree that women are a little more sensitive than men? Yes. I think, I think that's very true. And that's what I believe it means here. You need to treat them with honor. Don't yell at your wife. I'm so grateful that in my home, we've never thrown dishes. We've never cursed. It. I've never heard Esther say a curse word ever. We just don't do that. But I have people come in and counsel and you know, they start dropping all kinds of words in my office. Wait, whoa, hey, hey, time out. We don't do that here. Let's, you can do that at home, which is wrong, but don't do it here. But some people have this way, you know. Yeah, I was throwing a dish at him, and I didn't hit him, so he was lucky. whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Dishes flying, words flying, I mean... Treat her like she's a weaker vessel, that she can be broken. Be careful, be gentle. That's what that means. As being heirs together with the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Hmm. In other words, if you don't show her honor, if you don't dwell with understanding, then don't expect your prayers to be heard. Wow. Talk about accountability, men. That's where God holds you accountable. Well, I don't know if I agree with that, Pastor Lee. I don't care what you agree with, it's what it says. Your prayers are hindered. If you're going to be a jerk and treat your wife disrespectfully and break her heart over and over with your strong verbal ways and your, your demanding character, your prayers will be hindered, men. This, this is a threat, and I, I take it seriously, and I, I want to dwell... With understanding, Because I want my prayers heard. I, I want to have a close relationship with the Lord. And God expects us to have a close relationship physically and emotionally with our, our wives. Give honor to your wife. Then notice verse 16. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife and between a father and his daughter in her youth in her father's house. So there you have this chapter that really deals with vows and oaths. And I think it's very practical. Wouldn't you agree? The Bible is very practical. We read it sometimes the Old Testament, and we don't really catch all the nuances. But I hope that I can share some of those things with you, teaching you, instructing you. Let's run through. Chapter 31 long, but it's, I, I can do this really quick. Notice we have the battle. Here's a battle now. We're going to switch to this battle, God's command to destroy the Midianites. A lot to be explained, but, but I, can, I think I can do it real quick. Now let me, again... There's some hard things in the Bible. The Bible is a book of truth. It doesn't disguise the, the, the truth. It doesn't disguise war. It doesn't disguise the heart of man. It doesn't disguise judgment at all. It's a real book with real people. And here's a real battle here. And you might wonder why. And there's a lot of answers here. I want, I want you to understand these things that God is, is righteous, God is just, God is love. And in all that, he doesn't balance those things. He is those things. He doesn't take away a little love to be more just. He doesn't take some justice away to be more loving. He is only love, and he is all just, righteous in everything that he does, in every decision that he makes. It's his attributes. In other words, God is pure in all those ways. There's no sin in him, but there is sin in us, and we have to be judged. So there's Not balance, but there's true love and true justice in our God. And we see that here. We see that here. Because sin is a crime against God. Disobedience to God and his word. It's a crime against God and all that God is and all that God does in his holy nature. So his justice demands a penalty for your sin, for people's sin. That's where all the animal sacrifices have come into play as we've read through all of those things. There's a price to pay for sin, and it's blood sacrifice in the Bible. That's God's design. That's the way he made it. We just obey what God calls. Romans 1.18, notice this verse behind me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is going to judge. People talk about vows and importance of your word. God holds everyone accountable. God is love. It's one of his eternal attributes. God is just. He wouldn't be loving if he wasn't just. And his love is displayed through being just. And we'll see that. I'll I'll explain that as we go through. But you all know this verse. It's Romans 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much God loves us. He sent his son to die for us. So God has made a way for the sinner to be right by believing in his son, by believing in his provision in Jesus Christ who came and died on the cross. John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ Christ the Son of God, that by believing in Jesus that you may have what? Life, eternal life. It's always about eternal life. Your sins are forgiven when you believe in Jesus. You're given that gift of eternal life when you believe in his name. And the God of the Bible is loving. The God of the Bible is just. But the Midianites, the Midianites, that's the subject here. The Midianites sinned against God. And against God's people. You might remember, it was a few weeks ago, it was chapter 22. Remember Balaam and King Balak. Balaam, the prophet of Israel, who was, he would sell himself out for anything. And, he, and Balak comes, and Balak represents the five kings of Midian. Midian, Moab, and all the surrounding. These people were nomads. They just kind of wandered everywhere, built a city over there with their camels, went that way. and They were, they were a lot of people, but they were spread out all over that land. And when the children of Israel came into the land, we just want to go through there. We'll go on the sideway. We won't touch your crops. No, you're not coming through. And Balak says, i got a problem. King Balak says, i got a problem. There's two million Jews that are going to come through my land. I don't want them to come through here. What can I do? I'm going to get their prophet and I'm going to pay them off big time to curse the people of God. Remember, that was the plan. That was chapter 22, 23, 24, those chapters. We went through all of that. And so Balaam tried to curse, but God wouldn't let him. Tried to curse, but God wouldn't. Stood on another tried to curse the people of God. God wouldn't allow it. So Balaam, in the background, he goes, listen, I know how you can curse the people of God. You get them to intermarry with your women and bring their gods into your homes, that'll make God mad, and he'll judge his own people. You want to make them weak? That's how you do it. So he went around, and Balaam, he went around and sold everybody out and told them, we actually get his fate in this chapter. Balaam's fate is is in this chapter. But that's what he told them. He he was unable to curse Israel, so he tells the leaders of Midian to send their young girls to, to seduce the men of Israel, intermarriage, false gods, and then God will. And remember, when they did that, when they did that, there was major death in the camp because the men of Israel married the women, and 24,000 died, and God commanded Moses to kill those that disobeyed his rule. Remember, that was the the Israelites. Well, now God's going to take care of the Midianites before his people go into the promised land. He's taking care of the last things, vows, laws, holy days, And the Midianites. That's what this chapter is about. And the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1 Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm some of yourselves for war, and let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to war. So there were They were recruited from the divisions of Israel, 1,000 from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Then Moses, verse 6, sent them to war, 1,000 from each tribe. He sent them to the war with Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest. The priest was kind of in, in charge, leading with the holy articles, So he would have had some of the things from the tabernacle with him. And that was leading the people as they went to battle. Now, again, the nomadic people, the Midianites, they were spread all over. So it wasn't one city they had to defeat. They had to, these 12,000 guys had to go around and defeat these people in their different places where they were. We're not really sure how many people there were, but when you notice how much uh, booty, loot, uh, plunder comes from them, we're talking a substantial amount of people. And they warred against Midian, knights, verse 7, just as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed all the males. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed. And the names of the kings, Evie, Rechamzer, Her, Reba, the five kings of Midian. Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed, there is his fate, with a sword. And the children of his, look where Balaam was hanging out. He wasn't even hanging out with God's people. He was hanging out with the bad guys because he was making all kinds of money and he dies there with them in Midian. And the children of Israel took the women of Midian captive with their little ones and took the spoil of their cattle and all their flocks and their goods. They also burned with fire the cities that they dwelt in with their forts. And they took all the spoil and all the booty of man and beast. Now, again, not all these people are going to die in this. It says they all die here, but... Moses is just reporting, we were victorious, 12,000 of us, we wiped them all out. That's really what he's reporting, not lots of detail. But we know that later on, it's in Judges chapter 6, the the man Gideon, remember? He goes up against a a massive army, and he has this large group of Israelites, and God says, you got too many. I mean, there's there's 100,000 Midianites, but you know, they, you know, you you got 10,000. I only have 10,000. Well, that's too many. Remember Gideon? And, and God says, go pick the men that when they scoop up water, they keep their eyes open. And that's how you choose the men for 300. He ends up with these men. And he is successful because he obeyed God Gideon. And he goes against the Midianites. So we know the Midianites didn't all, they weren't all wiped out. But most of them at this time were now, when the 12,000 warriors come back, they return from war, verse 12. And again, I'm going to go quickly through this. Verse 12, they brought the captives, the booty, the spoil, to Moses, to Eliezer, the priest, to the congregation, the children of Israel. So they come back into the camp right before the tabernacle that's in the middle there, and they bring all this stuff with them, the booty, the, the, all the stuff that, that they got from the, people there and they brought it and put it before um, Moses and notice what it says there, by the Jordan across from Jericho, they're right there on the border, they're almost to go in verse 13 and Moses, Eliezer the priest and all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp but Moses was angry with the officers of the army and the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds who had come from the battle and Moses said to them have you kept all the women alive, you're supposed to wipe everybody out this is where it gets hard. You go, wait, whoa, 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 death and people. And wait, this is God's book. God's a God of love. What, what's going on here? So it's okay to think that, by the way. That's what we all think when we read. And then Moses says, look, these women caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass. So Moses is saying it was the women that obeyed their leader that seduced the Israelite men. There They should have died. What, what are you guys thinking? That's that's what Moses is asking there. And he says, at the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation. Don't you remember all those things? That's what Moses is saying. And then comes, here's the difficult order. You think that's hard. Listen, look at verse 17. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. But keep alive for yourself all the young girls who have not known a man intimately. Okay, a couple of things. Number one, in this culture, and you've probably seen some depiction of some Greek battles and, and war and stuff. When these people went to war, they killed everybody. Why would they kill the babies? Why would they kill the women? Why would they? Because they're going to remember what happened to their fathers and their men, and they're going to go after those people when they get older and they grow up, right? So it's very common for them to do that, to wipe out the whole society, to kill the babies, especially the males, because the males are going to grow up, right, and they're going to retaliate. And so th- that was one of the thoughts there. Secondly, keeping the young girls alive, not for sex slaves, not, 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 that's not, but for servants. So they used these young women. They were too young. They, were, they weren't married. They weren't of marrying age. They must have been 10 years old and younger, and they kept those And that shows the grace of God. He didn't wipe them completely out. He he shows his his compassion in that way. Verse 19, as for you, remain outside the camp seven days. So when you come back after the murder and the the pillaging and the killing and the wiping out, you've got blood on your hands, you can't come back in the camp. There's got to be this process of cleansing. We've read about it earlier in Numbers, and now we're seeing it again. Seven days for purity, Verse 20, purity of every garment made of leather, every woven goat's hair, thing made of wood. So there's blood splattered on everything. they got to purify it. That's really the, what's going on there. In verse 21, then Eliezer the priest said to the men of war who had gone to battle, this is the ordinance of the law of which the Lord commanded Moses, only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, the lead. Everything that can endure fire you shall put through the fire. Then it shall be clean, and it shall be purified with a water of purification. But all that cannot endure fire you shall put through water, and you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean. So there's this cleansing ritual going on because the blood of war, that's what that's all about. And then from verse 25 to 54, we're not going to read all the verses, but it's really about dividing the plunder. Now, what do they do with all the plunder? It's remarkable. It's numbers. Notice here in verse 25. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, count up the plunder that was taken of man and beast. You and Eliezer, the priests and the chief fathers of the congregation, and divide the plunder into two parts between those who took part in war, the guys, the captains, the generals, and then the rest of the congregation that was back at home. So they're going to divide all of the booty, that's all the plunder, it's going to be divided there between the soldiers and the other ones. Why? What's up with this? I believe that God doesn't want his people when they go to battle because they're going to go to Canaan now and there are going to be a lot of battles because there's inhabitants in the land that just like Midian were evil and God's going to judge them and he's going to use the children of Israel to do that judgment. And when they go against these people, there's going to be gold, silver, animals, livestock, things that are valuable. They're going to want to bring the value back To them, And he doesn't want his men to be pirates. He doesn't want them to be looters. So he said, you're responsible to bring it all back here, and then the priest is going to divide it in two sections. You're going to get a lot of it, but the people are going to get some too because I don't want my soldiers to be looters, to be pirates. It makes perfect sense. And then notice verse 32. The booty remaining from the plunder, which the men of war had taken, was 675,000 sheep. 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 persons in all of women who had not known a man intimately. Wow. So this, this was a significant group of people that just got wiped out because of their leaders and then the women that followed the leaders and the men in their plot to go along with Balaam to seduce the Israelites to try to ruin their lives. And God is getting vengeance on them because of they're evil. I mean, a lot of stuff. 12,000 men are going to get all that stuff. No, God divided it in half. So they come back from battle. And here's the, one of the most interesting things about this, and I'll end with this. It's in verse uh, 49. All of these 12,000 came back alive. None of them died. Notice verse 49. And they said to Moses, your servants have taken account of the men of war, who are under our command and not a man of us is missing. God had a plan, and God was working his plan out, and he used these people, his his children, the Israelites, to bring out justice against the evil Midianites that were trying to destroy God's people. Here's the moral of this story. Don't mess with God's people. You you know what? I thought about that today, and in closing, I just want to say I'm God's people. You're God's people. Satan has no power over you. This world has no power over you. You're God's son. You're God's daughter. He'll protect you. doesn't mean bad things don't happen to God's people. You're good people. We're all susceptible to all kinds of diseases and things, heart attacks and heart failures that we've endured here in our fellowship lately. We're, We're all susceptible to that. But you are God's son. You are God's daughter. And he's not going to let anybody touch you that he has not ordained. God loves you. He cares about you. And there are hard things in the Bible to deal with. Absolutely. But you can see that God brought vengeance on these people because they were out to kill the children of Israel. And you don't mess with God's people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the study tonight. Lots of information, two different topics. I just pray your people can absorb and hear and listen and learn. And that we, Lord, would be a people that are better because we're obedient to your word. pray that husbands and wives would be better because they would submit to your word and your way. That husbands would love their wives and listen to them. That wives would subject themselves, as the scripture says, to their husband. in your way to please you. And in doing that, find joy and peace. And Lord, help us when we say something to do what we say. Or not say anything at all. May we take our vows seriously, especially marriage. May we take our oath seriously. And Lord, bless your people. Encourage them. Lead them. Bless them, Lord, this week. And we will give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.